Well, I trust that you have uh, had the opportunity to enjoy as much snow as you would like to enjoy. Uh, when you have teenagers in the house, that might mean something different than if you don't. But uh, we had the opportunity yesterday to, to go out to, I don't know if Journey has, uh, has claimed a title, but to the Journey Slopes and uh, enjoy a little bit of sledding and, and just had a good time with kids and, and then uh, reminded them that if it wasn't too bad to go sledding for a couple of hours, that it certainly wasn't too bad to clear the driveway. <laughs> so uh, we got home and, uh, and cleared the driveway off, not knowing that this morning it would be an ice rink as we came out of the, out of the garage. But uh, anyway, isn't it interesting, ironic, that on a day in which we are experiencing ice and cold and drizzle and wet, that we talk about drought and as I've been planning my summer series, I have uh, come upon a, a really neat concept with an iceberg. So we may talk about uh, iceberg and, and snow and ice during the summer a little bit. But it is certainly good to see you uh, here today. As we talk about drought, I guess the question to ask today is, is have you ever experienced drought in your life? Now that question could mean a lot of different things, right? It could certainly mean a drought in which the crops, there's no rain, and we've experienced drought. And certainly in our state, over the last few years, we have experienced drought and, and issues of water and water supply for large communities and cities. But have you experienced other types of drought where your soul is thirsty where you feel parched and dry. And so as we look to the Scripture today, the question and the opportunity that we have before us is to capture a glimpse, a glimpse of Easter, a glimpse of, of refreshing water, of living water, of, of water that springs up eternally. And so that would be my prayer for us today is that even as we experience the droughts of life, that we would discover that God provides. He provides that, that water. He provides that refreshment that we need. And so this morning, as we continue to move towards the cross, I, I want us to look at the story of Elijah. And so let's turn to 1 Kings. And while the, the, the major story that we'll be focusing on is chapter 17, we want to begin in chapter 16, as we're introduced to King Ahab. And in verse 33 is an interesting statement, it's an interesting idea and concept that, that the writer wants us to understand. In verse 33 says, Ahab made an Asherah, we'll go back to that in just a minute, thus... Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Well, what, what that statement tells us is that, that whatever Ahab had done, that, that he had provoked God, he had sinned against God in a way that was so much greater than all those kings who had gone before him. And as you read up to the, the chapters before we get to here, we understand that the kings of Israel... Had, had done a lot of bad things. And Ahab seems to be the one that, that, that reaches this pinnacle that 
provokes God beyond any way that could have been imagined before then. Now, if you know your, your history of Israel at the time, remember the kingdoms had separated after Solomon. The southern kingdom of Judah seemed to be a, a little more stable, and the kings there seemed to be a little more focused in following after God. But in the north, in Israel, we see the rebellion. We see the turning away from God. We see what the Scripture here calls provoking God. It's a concept that we really don't think much about today. Yet even in the New Testament, Paul in Galatians 6 says this, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. And I think there are those times and those seasons in our lives, whether that be individually, whether that be corporately, whether that be nationally, that we provoke God, we mock God. And we need to understand that God will not be mocked, that God will not be provoked to a point in which He will not respond, in which He will not act. And because of our provocation, because of Ahab's provocation, His people, the people of Israel, are going to experience a drought that they have never experienced like before. So go back up to verse 31 and we, we begin to see what was the provocation. And the Scripture says it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and he made the Asherah as well. Isn't that interesting in verse 31? Ahab considered sin a trivial thing. I wonder how many of us, even in our New Testament context of grace, I wonder how many of us really understand the gravity of sin, the seriousness of sin. Or if we were to be honest with each other today, would we come alongside the Scripture and say, you know what, sin is a trivial thing. You know, God's going to forgive us. He's forgiven us. You know, we can just do whatever we want to. Sin is trivial, and it really doesn't matter that much in life anymore. We can do what we want to. We can, we can pursue whatever we want to. We can lust after whatever we want to. And we can see that come to fruition. And you know what? It's just a trivial thing because God's going to forgive us. For Ahab, this was a trivial thing, a trivial pursuit to marry Jezebel whose father was king of Phoenicia, who worshipped the Baals, who pursued the Baals, so much so that Ahab built a, a, an altar to Baal, so much so that he built an Asherah, he built an, an idol to this God, this mother God that was to be worshipped. Is sin trivial in your life? Are there some things that have a hold of you and you say, oh, it really doesn't matter, God's going to forgive me. Or are you provoking God? Paul puts it this way in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? The Romans were saying, well, Paul, why don't we just keep sinning? Because then we can experience God's grace in, in great ways and new ways, so we'll just keep sinning. 
And Paul's response is dramatic. He exclaims in the text, May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You see, Ahab was the king of Israel. He should have had favor with God. He should have been a worshiper of God and a leader of God's people to follow after Yahweh. Yet, Ahab decided to make a a political move. A move that would have been affirmed by his advisors, by the, the nations around him, by aligning with Phoenicia to strengthen Israel's position militarily against the great enemy of the day, Syria. And so from the outside, it may have looked like a good thing. Yet the Scriptures tell us otherwise. Jezebel was not just a passive queen that was convenient for a military alliance. But she was the ruler of Israel at that time. She was an aggressive, in-charge queen. Now isn't it interesting that Baal is the god of fertility, is the god of rain, is the God who would assure that the crops would would come to fruition, that the harvest would be great. And so as this alliance is made, as Jezebel is welcomed into Israel, the the temples, the the altars are, are created to worship Baal. Why? So that they could ensure that the harvest would be plentiful, so that the rain would come and meet the needs of the land and of the people. Now enter Elijah. Verse 17, it's the first time we're introduced to Elijah. He's from a, a, a nowhere place, just kind of comes out of the blue. And listen to what he has to say to Ahab. He says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Isn't that interesting that that Yahweh comes against Ahab and Israel and Jezebel by bringing about drought? Because you see, the God that they were worshiping, the God that they were depending on was the God of the storm, was the God of rain, was the God that was going to assure that there was no drought, that there was plenty for the harvest to come forward. And yet this is where God responds to Ahab's idolatry and provocation. The Scripture, as we put the story together, we understand that this drought lasts for three and a half years and it impacts all of the land and all of the people. Yet in the midst of this drought, we see God's faithful provision. Remember the story of of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. When Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son, and and then at the last moment, as God sees Abraham's heart and his obedience, God spares Isaac, and there's a ram that's provided. And in that revelation, in Genesis 22, the Lord God reveals that I am Yahweh, Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, your Lord God provider. 
And so the promise that we have today for us, the, the, the glimpse of Easter that we see is that God is provider even during the droughts of life that come our way. So notice what God does with Elijah as we read this story. And I would encourage you to go back this afternoon and this week and, and reflect on this story. But God says to Elijah, Elijah, the drought is coming, so you need to leave. You need to get out of town. Because Elijah confessed that it was through his words, through his mouth, that, that the drought would, be, would come to an end. And so Yahweh says, you need to get away. You need to go to the east of the Jordan. You need to go to an out-of-the-way, remote place in the wilderness. A place called Cherith Brook. Interesting that the word Cherith means cut off. It means isolated. It means alone. Okay, Elijah. I'm going to send you to this place that's cut off from everywhere. It's isolated. There's nobody there. And you're going to be able to, to stay there until this drought is over. Until I call you back. And there at the creek, I will provide the water that you need. And then in verse 6, it tells us another interesting part of God's provision. It says that the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and evening, and he would drink from the brook. Isn't it interesting that, that God chose ravens to bring sustenance to Elijah? To bring bread and to bring meat so that he could live in this isolated place, cut off from all the people where he could hide and be alone and where he could be molded and shaped by God during this time. I find it interesting that the ravens, the law says that ravens are to be detested as abhorrent, unclean, birds isn't it interesting that that god would send elijah to a place that's cut off and isolated and he would only provide his food and sustenance through that which has been declared by the law abhorrent and unclean now i don't know if you know a lot about ravens but i don't know if i'd want to eat what they eat all right i mean they scavengers right where did you get that meat, Mr. Raven? <laughs> I don't know, but here you go, right? They're unclean. They're detestable. And yet these are the, the means through which God was going to provide for Elijah during the next months. Yet verse 7, as we continue the story, kind of throws another twist into this story of God providing. When in verse 7, the Scripture simply says that the brook dried up. Well, there's no rain. And after a period of time, the brook dried up. Can you imagine Elijah saying, okay, God, you, you sent me out here in the middle of this desert, in the middle of the wilderness to provide for me, and now there's no more water. There's no more refreshment. How am I going to live out here? Here's the question for us today. One of the questions is, what do you do when God's provision dries up? What do you do when... when the brook of Cherith runs dry. What do you do when the ravens quit showing up? 
Well, God, you said you're going to provide. And you said you're going to provide through this brook and through these ravens. God, you said you're going to provide. And now the creek's dried up, God. I thought you were going to provide. You see, if we're not careful, we can grow dependent upon God's means of provision instead of upon God, right? And so the creek dries up, and it doesn't mean that God's not going to provide anymore, but what it means is that God has a new plan, a new way of provision, if Elijah will be open to that. And so as we begin the second part of this story, the Lord says, go to Zarephath. Isn't it interesting that Zarephath is in Phoenicia, where Jezebel is from? The Lord says that a woman will be there to provide for him. So he makes his way to Zarephath. Now remember, this is a long distance. If you look in in your maps in your Bible, Zarephath is on the coast in Phoenicia. It, It was a long journey and Elijah was being sought out. Yet he's able to make the the trip undiscovered. And he's able to find a woman who's out collecting sticks at the gate. And as we read the story, she's out collecting sticks at the gate because she only has enough food for one more meal. And so she's collecting sticks so that she can go home and she can prepare a last meal for her and her son so that they can die. And this is the woman that's going to provide for Elijah, right? Imagine that. God, I I thought the ravens were kind of questionable, but now a single mother, widowed, who's poor, who doesn't even have enough food to feed her, her family after this next meal. God, what are you doing? I thought you were going to provide for me. And yet God says, this is the woman. This is the woman who's going to meet your needs. And so as as Elijah approaches this woman, this widow, he asks her for a cup of water and she provides. And then she says, could you give me some bread? And that's when she explains the story that she only has enough meal and enough oil for one last loaf of bread. And Elijah makes her a promise. He says, if you'll make that loaf for me, and if you'll commit to feeding me, then whenever you go to get the flour, whenever you go to get the oil, there will always be enough. There will always be provision. Look in verse 14. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the face of the earth. And so this woman began to prepare the last meal of every day. As far as she knew, the last meal that she would ever prepare, and she would provide that, she would give that to Elijah, and then she would always discover there was enough for her and her son, her household, to have that day. You see, it's the combination of our obedience and of God's faithfulness that is the formula that produces the miraculous in our lives. And sometimes the miraculous is just enough. God's provision for the day. Until a new provision is needed. As we continue to read the story, we become aware of, I would assume, how sickly her son is. 
Imagine just having barely enough to, to eat every day and a, and a young boy growing up. And, and whatever is his health ailment, maybe it's, it's bad nutrition, it, maybe he has a disease, a sickness, an illness, maybe he was in an accident, we don't know. But we do know that this young boy, this widow's young son, dies. And she approaches Elijah, she becomes angry. How could you come and how could you, your God put this son, this only son of mine, to death? And so Elijah takes the boy from the mother. And he goes up to this upper room where he's been staying. And he begins to pray and to seek God. And he puts his body prostrate upon this young dead son. And he does that three times. And God answered his prayer. And God brought this young boy to life. Now we need to understand that at this point in Scripture, there is no precedence for this. There is no such thing as resurrection at this point. No one has been raised from the dead as far as the Scripture tells us. So Elijah, in his seeking God, is praying for something that has never been understood or experienced before. And yet he has the courage to pray. Why? Because he's discovered that God provides. In verse 23, Elijah comes downstairs and he took the child and he gives the child to the mother. And he says, see, your son is alive. Your son is alive. You see, with God's provision, there is always enough. And through this story that we've just seen, the story of Elijah, through the story of the drought and of God's provision, we can discover that in whatever drought that we are in, that through God, there is always enough. In the New Testament, Paul puts it this way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. For power is perfected in weakness. My power, my, my presence in your life is perfected through the droughts of life that we experience, through the great needs of life that we might have. God's power is perfected. It's sufficient. And so Paul concludes this, I am content. I am content with difficulties. I am content with the droughts of life. What about you? Have you experienced droughts through life? Have you experienced God's grace and God's sufficiency during the droughts of your life? And, and have you learned to say when there's just enough, when there's just enough, have you learned to say thank you, God? Have you learned to be gracious? Have you learned to be full of thanksgiving when there's just enough? When you, when you go to the barrel and there's just enough Flour for one more meal. And there's just enough oil for one more meal. Have you learned to say thank you God during the drought for just enough? Oh, that we would, would capture His Spirit and His understanding and His faithfulness and that we would grow to be content with enough. Are you experiencing that season of drought today? Are you discovering or have you discovered yet God's provision? Can we learn to be content with God's provision in a culture, in a land 
of consumption and materialism. Well, everybody else has this or that. Well, God, how come I don't? Well, maybe the Lord is saying you have enough, don't you? Can we be content with enough? Even in a land of wealth and of consumption. Are we open to the possibility that God is going to provide for us through the ravens and through the widows of our world? Have you even considered the possibility that there may be a raven, there may be a widow, there may be someone that you would think has no possibility of being able to provide or to meet a need in your life or that could be used by God and maybe the reason you haven't experienced God's provision is because you said, you know what, the widows and the ravens are not a part of my life. They're detestable, unclean. And yet God is saying, here are some folks, here are some people that I want to introduce into your life that can meet a need, that can be my source of provision for you during the drought. Are we open to that possibility? Are we open to the possibility that the cross, that the cross is the solution to the drought of our lives? Like the ravens and the widows, the cross is a bit uncivilized and unclean. It's so offensive to talk about broken bodies and shed blood, a blood sacrifice. Yet the truth of Scripture is that it is enough. And not only is it enough, It's required, it's needed in order for us to move out of the droughts that we experience. On the night in which He was crucified, Jesus shared the Passover with His disciples. We know the story. He took bread, He broke it, He he reinterpreted the Passover meal. He took a cup and He blessed it and He reinterpreted that cup for us. We'll share together here in just a few moments. But remember what happened before? Jesus girded himself with a towel and he took a water basin and he began to wash the feet of the disciples around him. And when he got to Peter, Peter said, Oh Lord, no, you can never wash my feet. I won't stand for it. And the Lord said, Oh, but Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you'll never be clean. And Peter said, Oh, then wash all of me. And the Lord said, No, Peter, it is enough. Enough that I wash your feet. Your feet. 